Tonight, we are going to witness the most anticipated match in the history of professional film. For the dozen in attendance, and for the handful listening around the world, it's time for Remake Rumble! Hello and welcome to Remake Rumble, the podcast that pits a classic film against its remake, the old guard against the new, in a dazzling display of motion picture pugilism. Two films enter, one film leaves. My name is Johnny Lee, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Daniel, the time traveller's wife, Gilmore. Hello, Daniel. I'm the future. And David, hot tub time machine rat again. Hello, David. And I'm the past, I guess I would say. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Today's episode is a time travel treat <laughs> and a half, as classic 1980s comedy Back to the Future attempts to withstand 1.21 gigawatts worth of pummeling from Mancunian musical adaptation Back to the Future, the musical. As ever, we'll put both productions through their paces and see which comes out on top, as well as test Daniel and David's Back to the Future know-how in the quiz to end all quizzes, the quiz. So, the clock is ticking. It's high time we entered the remake rumble ring. Oh, and spoilers? Where we're going, there will be spoilers. Forget Battle of the Bands, this is a battle of the backs. To the future, that is... Directed by Robert Zemeckis, Back to the Future is a rollicking sci-fi comedy adventure in which an ordinary teen, accidentally sent back in time by an eccentric scientist, must ensure his parents fall in love or be wiped from existence. Thundering to the top of the American box office in 1985 and earning three Academy Award nominations with a win for Best Sound Effects Editing, Back to the Future is perhaps the most iconic blockbuster from a decade jam-packed with them and rightly earned its place within the U.S. National Film Registry in 2007. But what's a movie compared to the buzz of the theater? Debuting earlier this year at the Manchester Opera House, Back to the Future the Musical is a fleshy musical adaptation spearheaded by Back to the Future's co-creator Bob Gale and directed by Broadway veteran John Rando. In gestation since 2005 and originally planned to mark the movie's 30th anniversary in 2015, the production has since closed amidst the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but a revival is hoped once normality returns. So, it's movie versus musical in this time travel tournament, this trans-temporal tear-up. Prepare for the podcast punch-out that is Remake Rumble! This episode, we're breaking new ground, looking at a classic film and its stage musical adaptation. Now, David, you're one of the privileged few on this planet to have actually seen Back to Future the Musical. Uh, That's very true. That's very true. Preview show in February, is that right? Yes. Long time ago now, it feels. Yeah. So unfortunately, due to present circumstances, the show is no longer running and Daniel and I haven't had a chance to see it. Uh, so perhaps to start us off then, David, you're a big fan of Back to the Future. Perhaps you could tell us, were you excited to see the musical? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was sceptical as well, but I'm a massive fan of the original film. I mean, I'll, I'll say now, I don't think it's a perfect film, but I mean, it's probably the film I've seen the most, probably. I don't know. I, I don't really keep track. I do have a Letterboxd account, if anyone wants to follow me. But <laughs> um yeah, I've seen it quite a few times, and I'm from a family of Back to the Future fans, so we were all pretty excited. So we all went together to see it. Mm, exciting times. So coming back to the original film for a moment... Daniel, had you seen Back to the Future before watching it for this episode? Are you a fan already? This is my first time, unfortunately. I Whoa. knew it was kind of a gap. Listen, my understanding of Steven Spielberg goes back to the Columbo episode, and that's about it. I watched E.T. once and I didn't much care for it. Back to the Future <laughs> 1 is 
pretty much the quintessential blockbuster, though. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has already seen it, but it's a pretty good, fun little flick. And that's kind of what Spielberg does. So I was very glad to have finally caught up to him. It's interesting to hear that. Uh, it's good to know that it's not just a nostalgia thing, that you mm. enjoyed watching it in 2020. Have you never seen it before? You know, everyone's going on madcap capers. There's a lot of bullies. There's a lot of fun prosthetic noses and skin, which is always enjoyable to watch. So yeah. Might be worth saying before the one person who's listening is up in arms typing up emails. It was uh, Robert Zemeckis is the director. Oh, sorry. Right. I thought he, I always thought he was people like had more of a say in this. He was an exec producer. Is that right? Uh, yeah, he got it okay. off the ground, I think. Mm. Right. I just assume every film is made by Steven Spielberg. It's a pretty good bet at this point. <laughs> I, I think Steven Spielberg, because the, the, um, Zemeckis and, and Gale, who, who wrote it and Zemeckis directed it, I think they tried to get off the ground for a long time. And I think Steven Spielberg had long supported it, but they'd already made a couple of films with Steven Spielberg and they didn't want to be associated with him. So they felt like they had to go off and have a bit of a career first. And then when they came back, I think he executive produced it. And that, that, and Universal gave the, the green light. Hmm. I think he also fancied his mum. I think that was part of the, part of the appeal. Well, apparently they tried selling it to Disney, but they didn't approve of the incest. <laughs> it's a red line for Mickey. <laughs> but you're coming back to the, the kind of nostalgia potentially coloring your perception of the film. And, you know, again, it's a relief to hear that you enjoyed it, Daniel. Um, despite, you know, it does have its flaws and I would agree with you as well. I do think, though, that it is a film that does stand the test of time in a way that a lot of these 80s adventure films don't. Because I think like there's a lot of these 80s films which, in our, in our heads, there are these amazing, fun adventure films, but on repeat viewing, they really don't hold up so well. So The Goonies is an example of this for me. So for years, I was convinced that this was a good film. And then I went back and watched it recently, and it's just a bunch of tiny children <laughs> screaming at each other for two hours. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think by contrast, Back to the Future has aged well, you know, partly because it's got a really solid script and it's really well cast, good practical effects, um, lots of things mm. that these other films that maybe perhaps not aged as well don't have. So I agree it's aged well. I'll be a bit more controversial and say, I don't know if this is like an action adventure kind of film. I'd compare this a lot more to something like um, a Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I think is probably, I, I prefer Ferris to this, if I'm honest. But when you're watching it, you, you know, you get swept up in it. Like it's still an enjoyable piece of just like, oh, we'll hear some romance alongside some mild action and peril scenes alongside some daft sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, alongside, you know, just some machine gun fire from Libyans, which is always an interesting <laughs> kind of period piece, let's say. I think those are the things that haven't aged as well, where you really do get yeah. a sense of the, the slight undercurrents of, of racism or mm-hmm. slightly dodgy gender politics. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. We haven't gone through the swing in 90s yet. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think actually that's a weakness of the franchise as a whole. The female characters are pretty crap and... Focusing on the first film, obviously the the awkward sexual assault scene is a bit uncomfortable and hasn't aged very well. It's a classic way of upping the stakes. Again, like you said, it's a it's a product of its time. Mm. You, they kind of just use that as the mechanics, let's say, of, of setting up a, a threat. And it's a bit grim. It's not exactly a pleasant watch, but no, but it's 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 unpleasant. But then they kind of treat it in a, in a somewhat light hearted way, like when mm. Biff is there. Igor, like manservant in the future, 
that's kind of odd. Like, why would you keep your sexual assault assailant around the house just like doing your hoovering or whatever? Yeah, I don't, I've never understood that. Never understood that. Even though the performance from Thomas Wilson is really funny, but yeah, doesn't warrant his existence there just because he's a, a humorous addition. Absolutely. I, I would say Tom, Thomas Wilson as Biff Tannen is a, is a real treat, I think, throughout the series mm. in every various Tannen iteration. <laughs> yeah. Mad Dog's <laughs> the, the top one for me. There, there's also some other weird sort of sexual politics in that, like in the second film um just kind of going beyond the first film for a second where you have jennifer is that the name of marty's girlfriend mm-hmm. and i remember thinking re-watching it because years since i've watched it, i didn't remember the sequels very well and then at the end of the first film when she gets in the car and think oh cool okay she's going to be involved uh, more in the next film she's going to go and join them on their adventure and then within like the first five minutes i think the doc like she puts her to sleep or something. Her, her, her one line is something about like, oh, how was my wedding and how are my babies or something? And then he puts her to sleep. Um, and I, and I, yeah, wondered, I, I agree with you. I wondered if that was parodied actually in Rick and Morty because uh, Rick is, is really disparaging about um, whatever the sister's called. Also, I'd like to offer a counterpoint. There were two strong female characters. They were the female police officers that pick her up in the back alley. Oh, very true. Very true. They were very powerful. I mean, they don't say anything. No, because I think they say, oh, yeah, look, it's Jennifer. And I think that's about <laughs> equivalent to what Jennifer says in the film. <laughs> yeah, I think Bob Gale has said that, as in Bob Gale, the writer, um, had he known there was going to be a sequel, because there was never a plan for the be a sequel, the kind of DeLorean flying off at the end of the first film was just meant to be that, like, just a kind of fun way to end. This is kind of slightly before Hollywood's complete franchise mania, right? And he always said that, oh, had he known that he was going to do the sequel, he wouldn't have put Jennifer in the car because it just complicates things. But I've always thought that's a weird comment because I don't really see how it complicates anything. I mean, you could have easily had Jennifer as a engaging, fun part of the next two films. You didn't need to knock her out and then just put her on a bench. And it's like, oh, she's fine now. Mm. I agree with you on that. But it does explain why two is so much more labyrinthine than one. Like, one is just like, oh, yeah, you know, go on a cool time-traveling fun-time adventure. Here's a DeLorean. Everyone's having a good time. And then the second one's like, okay, listen, we have three different paradoxes all happening at once. There are three different people that are all you but aren't you. So make sure you don't look at them, but also look at them. Also, don't touch anything, but I just touched this thing and it's fine. But now we're in an alternate reality, which isn't the reality that we're in, but it's still going to be reality. They're fine, by the way. They're just going to appear in the next one. So I was going to ask you guys, was it? done with the idea that you're gonna have three parts of mind so hearing that it wasn't <laughs> makes a lot of sense so coming back to the original film one of the things i do really like is the relationship between doc and marty obviously the casting's fantastic and that's a large part of this but also it's an interesting relationship like it's, i think it's unusual to have this older scientist guy and a young handsome high school dude with all <laughs> the 80s hallmarks of rebellious you know rule breaker with his skateboards and his Sweet guitar solos. Um, and something I wanted to ask you guys about actually was that, so in our episode on the thing versus the thing from another world, we talked a bit about the depiction of scientists in Hollywood and how during the sort of height of the Cold War, scientists are usually evil because, you know, they're intellectuals and intellectuals are basically communist cocoons waiting to blossom <laughs> into, you know, Marxist revolutionaries or whatever. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But in Back to the Future, Dot Brown is is obviously like a very different figure from that. Um, he is a scientist, he's an intellectual, but he's also the protagonist um, and not a villain. But at the same time, I think the film goes to quite a lot of lengths to make him very different from that sort of stuffy intellectual stereotype that you had in the likes of The Thing mm-hmm. from Another World of the 50s. Doc doesn't work for a university or even a private lab like any actual scientist. No, he owns Doc Brown Enterprises and seems to work alone. In his garage, basically. Exactly, his garage, yeah, which is which in and of itself is funny. Um, there's little details like the DeLorean has a personalized license plate 
And interestingly, I think in the film, Doc isn't the only intellectual type. There's also the teachers, the Marty School. And I think the film very deliberately contrasts Doc with those teachers who are all squares and nerds. Whereas he's a kind of like, you know, rule breaker himself in his own way. And I think it's interesting the film expects its presumably mostly young American audience to identify, obviously, with the cool, handsome Marty. And in turn, once you, you know, partners that protagonist up with basically this like old man scientist. Yeah, I agree with you, Doc. Um, Doc, I was going to say, I agree with you, Doc. <laughs> I, I, am the, I, I agree with you, Johnny. I'm the Doc of this podcast. Let's be honest. <laughs> That's right. I think it's forgotten. A bit like what we were talking about with Star Wars, that kind of, um, it is actually inherently quite a strange film. There are many things about this film that now are seen as cultural touchstones, DeLorean being one example, but that in and of itself is actually a joke. Mm. The fact that he's bought what was at that time quite a controversial, stylish car and decided to make a time machine out of it. And even just the inherent premise of, okay, this is a film about someone's mum falling in love with their son is totally weird. Um yeah, you know, they just run with it. That's the Spielberg magic I love. <laughs> the Zemeckis who, did, who, definitely, who definitely directed this and not Robert <laughs> Zemeckis. Well, it's interesting talking about Zemeckis. I don't think he was hugely involved with the musical. I mean, I don't... He, he was involved, for sure. But it does seem like Bob Gale... I think he's t- basically taken the musical as his baby and he's the key creative force behind that. I mean, he wrote the script and he's... All the interviews and everything are with Bob Gale. So on that note, uh, I believe Zemeckis and Bob Gale said that they would never do a remake. Um, and I was reading recently in an interview with Bob Gale um, that he said the musical, this was before the, the musical came out, that um, mm-hmm. it would be true to the spirit of the film without being a slavish remake. Would you say that's true, David? Does it avoid being a slavish remake? Um, I think it is definitely not slavish because there are changes made. Um, because I think because it's a theatrical production, they have to make changes because certain things just wouldn't work. So, for example, Einstein the dog is gone. They just got got rid of him because it's like, well, I guess, you know, it would be really difficult to do a dog unless there was someone <laughs> in the dog suit. <laughs> Although, interestingly, in researching for this, apparently there are shots in the original film where to get the uh, DeLorean to move around, obviously they need a guy to drive it. So there's a stunt driver wearing a full dog costume driving the DeLorean in certain shots. I mean, it's completely irrelevant oh! to this point, but <laughs> don't want to put that yeah, out there. Yeah, it's in the first scene because he's going around the, the um, yeah, 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 the, the parking lot. I was just thinking, man, I hope they didn't use a real dog for that. <laughs> Is that really a man in a dog suit? Yeah, I think if you pause it, you can probably see the uh, the dog head. Genius. But yeah, so there are changes. A big change, I would say, is the fact that in the original film, Doc is you know he's gunned down by terrorists. Here, it's not the same at all. And I don't know if this is a kind of, you know, a political correctness point or if it is because they thought they couldn't stage the chase sequences, right? You know, with the DeLorean rushing around and the van chasing after them. So in the musical, what happens is it's it's actually really stupid, to be honest. Um, Obviously, the DeLorean is still plutonium powered. And so in uh, in transferring the plutonium into the DeLorean, they have to he has to wear a hazmat suit. And what happens is the hazmat suit, (laughs) as he bends over like a pantomime rips at the bum basically of his bum is exposed to the audience as he rips over and you think oh maybe it's just a, a little gag right no that is how doc brown dies in the musical uh, huh. hmm. he basically because of the rip in the hazmat suit he's exposed to radiation <laughs> through the bum hole apparently and marty's like oh my god doc you're you, you know you've got radiation sickness and he's like I, as i recall he's like glowing green 
so obviously I'm thinking now this is the original film's kind of slightly weird, right? But it's quite grounded. This to me seems now very cartoonish. And so Marty's like, right, I'll, I'll go and get help. Jumps in the DeLorean. Obviously, it's the only vehicle nearby. And he's like whizzing to the hospital. And it's in whizzing to the hospital that he accidentally reaches, you know, the 88 miles per hour threshold that sends him back in time. So personally, I thought that was kind of silly. I don't know why they did it like that. When I was watching it, because they actually reference here that Doc was involved with the Manhattan Project, obviously, you know, the the American project to get the, the atom bomb off the ground. And um, I think that's where he got his plutonium from in this case, rather than the kind of Libyans. And I assumed maybe what they were going to do is like, I don't know, FBI or CIA come chasing after him or something. I think that maybe would have been a better way to handle it. Mm. I mean, for what it's worth, the musical is really great in those moments of, you know, special effects sequences. And it's good that just as the original film was groundbreaking for its special effects work, this is genuinely, you basically go to watch it for these scenes where the DeLorean is whizzing around because somehow you feel like it's moving in front of you, despite the fact, obviously, you're sat in a theater. Um so total hats off to the team who pulled that off. I think Chris Fisher is the guy who oversaw that. I think he'd done work for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which I haven't seen. But I think that's a very uh, special effects based thing as well. I did wonder what happened to those Libyans in the original film. Did they all die in that mild automobile collision? Yeah, that's right. There's a bit of a kerfuffle and they all just kind of fell over. I swear Biff and his pals took more of a crash when they hit that manure truck. They, they fully <laughs> suffocated under that cow shit. Like, they're dead. The other thing I was interested in, David, is whether in the musical, do the lead actors play the characters of Marty and Doc like Michael Fox and Christopher Lloyd? Do they try to sort of recreate the same mm-hmm, acting mm-hmm. or do they interpret the characters differently and take them in new directions? Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, not everyone is, but I mean, obviously all the characters are based in the film. And I think part of the reason you're going to see this musical, at least for me, was because you love the film and you want to see how it works in a different medium. So most people in the audience are huge Back to the Future fans and they kind of want one-for-one recreations of the on-screen characters, I think. Mm-hmm. Hugh Coles, who plays George McFly, obviously that's Crispin Glover in the original film, who I think is my favourite character in the original film. I just love the performance, um, top to bottom. I mean, not so much when he becomes the reformed George McFly at the end of the film. I, I think that it, it, he becomes a bit boring at that point, even though I know that's supposed to be an improved version of him. I much prefer him at the start when he's like super nervous and twisting his body and contorting it in all this weird shapes. But Hugh Coles is basically doing a Crispin Glover impression and... Um, it's a really good Crispin Glover impression to the point where when he's saying the words, everyone in the audience wants to be on their feet applauding it. I mean, everyone loved it. Literally, all he had to do was say a line and people were going crazy. And, you know, I wanted to be objective about it, but I, I kind of felt myself swept up in that as well. I was <laughs> I was quite enjoying it. Um, but that's not true for everybody. I mean, Doc, he's doing slightly different things. I don't know if either of you have seen... I mean, maybe the Broadway version itself, but definitely like the 2005 movie of um, The Producers. I have seen that one, yeah. I have not. Oh, I mean, that's a remake in and of itself, obviously, of of the Mel Brooks film. Maybe we can talk about that one day. But um, Roger Bart, who I think plays the assistant of the gay director in The Producers, he's the one who's playing Doc here. And his performance is different to Christopher Lloyd. But I mean, for me, it was very one note. He was basically just shouting everything. It didn't quite have the nuance that I would have wanted, that I think Christopher Lloyd gives. I mean, I think when you listen to him in interviews, he's obviously very sincere and wants to do Christopher Lloyd justice. But I I personally don't think he quite does it. I don't think it's a bad performance by any means. But I mean, he's basically just shouting every line. It's almost like he's seen the film 
scene that Christopher Lloyd shouts, Great Scott, and is just doing everything at that level. Everything's at a 10, so there's no Everything's room for at anything a 10, else. Yeah, everything's yeah, at no, a 10. Yeah, I know what you mean. Apart from actually at one point where um, he's doing a song. Uh, it's like a, you know, a solo song for... I mean, he has a few songs throughout, to be fair, but there's one particular moment where it's a solo song. Um, I think it's called Here's to the Dreamers, and it's like... It's quite sweet, actually. I mean, the audience, when I saw it, we were all like hanging on every word. And it was, you know, it was quite nice. But equally, it was also quite parodic because Doc Brown, you don't really want to see him as this kind of tragic figure. And that was what that song to me was kind of painting him as. It was a kind of Disney princess-esque yearning song. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. Like, was the music consistently of a good quality? Like, did it manage to maintain that throughout? Uh, I I would say it was good music throughout. I mean, there are standout sequences, but I would say across the board, it wasn't especially memorable. I mean, I would say potentially, actually, it being a musical might have harmed it because it was quite long and I felt like the songs maybe distracted a little bit. Right, right. So do you think then that given the music potentially harms it, do you think it being a musical adds anything to the story? Would you ever want to watch the musical over the film? I don't think so. Um... I wouldn't say so. I mean, the highlights musically are when you get the performances from the original film, you know, like the Johnny Be Good and um, Earth Angel and all that kind of stuff that is already there in the film. So really, you're better off just watching the film. I mean, I think it's it's well done for what it is, um, but I don't know if it, for me, I don't know if it surpassed it. All the music to me, again, as I say, was just kind of, you know, just filler almost. Not that it was bad. I mean, there was a particularly good performance from Goldie Wilson when he's the waiter. And it's not even a necessary song because really he's not a big character, but it's probably the best bit of the the whole show. And I think actually they did that performance as part of the sport relief earlier this year, maybe because they knew themselves that that was like the best number. But it's weird that the best number comes from a side character, I would say. Well, I mean, that sometimes happens even in films, you know, sometimes the most memorable parts do come from characters that aren't the star of the show. If you look at something like um, Christmas Vacation, you know, like Cousin Eddie's the star. Like, it's not anyone else. Like, he's the funny one. It's it's like, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's true. And I guess, like, Marty in the original film isn't necessarily the standout performance. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you two agree with that. I think, in some ways, Michael J. Fox does a great job. In a way, he's a hard character, I think, in the first film to do in an interesting way. And I think he does a good job given that. In a way, he's one of the more boring characters. Because it seems to me like George McFly is really the one who goes through an arc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think actually that's part of a problem with the series is the the focus on Marty, but they don't really set Marty up to have an arc. And that's okay for the first film. But then they try to force that arc onto him in the sequels with the don't call me chicken thing. Never, no one calls me chicken. Oh, um, which God. is bad. I mean, I've almost forgotten about that. It's not good. It's not good. It, yeah, it's, it's very much a case of shoehorning in... Yeah, that, that opportunity for character development. Dan, you were saying before, were these films done together? And I feel like that is the proof that they were never thought of as a cohesive whole. Mm. Because it, there's, there's, it almost seems to contradict on some level the original Marty. Because isn't the original Marty, it's all about like him feeling that he is a bit like his father and that he's scared of rejection? I don't even think he's scared necessarily of being his father. I think it's like a, just a contempt, like an open contempt for his father. <laughs> he just seems to really despise him. And I can kind of see why. Like it, it does seem a bit... Well, bit of a liability, to be honest. But <laughs> with Marty, I don't think it's necessarily like a fear of becoming that. I think it's more just like he wants something better and he sees an opportunity for it. And also, I guess, the threat of not being alive and existing, which I suppose spurs him on in the first one. In the second and third ones, I guess you could kind of argue, well, he's 
you know, trying to make things right. He's trying to return things to the way they are and like the way they should be. And especially the third one, he tries to become something else and he tries to make himself a better person. But it's not him. Again, that's why I prefer Ferris because it's like he kind of learns, but also he kind of gets away with it. So <laughs> I, think, I don't know. In a way, Marty's a little bit like Ferris in Ferris Bueller. He's a slacker, but he's forced to become active by being sent back in time um, in order to save right. his life and and uh, save the future he has to to get involved. But there's a lot of that kind of character around at this time. I mean, if you look at War Games, the main character of War Games is kind of in a similar situation. Not really an important person at school. He kind of acts out and then like he gets access to the computer programs and he manages to affect changes that he wants to see. Not necessarily because he wants to change, but because it's like, well, you know, I'm a teenager. What else am I going to do with the kind of abilities that I've got now? And that's kind of what happens with Marty. You know, he gets time travel powers. So, say time travel powers, he gets to go back in time. So he's going to do daft things. He's going to kind of explore and then he's going to have to deal with the consequences. It's interesting you mentioned about Marty being kind of a bit of a rebel, but a countercultural character. I'd be interested to know what you think then about the politics of the first film, because I think a lot of people criticize it for being um, romanticizing the 1950s in a kind of Reagan-esque way, right? Obviously, Reagan's the president. It's kind of a neoconservative time. (laughs) So yeah, I don't know what you think about that. I mean, with Back to the Future 1, it's such a strange one to come back to because it has almost become its own nostalgia. Back to the Future 1 has been constantly referenced in everything. (laughs) Every single scene has been parodies and pastiched and like done in other places even like the jacket and the delorean like they all become like you know there's a certain age group of people that look at those kind of stuff and go oh yeah yeah that's really cool that's, that's really excellent kind of like a bit like star wars uh-huh. yeah but um until you get to two i don't think it actually does that nostalgia stuff i think when it talks about like johnny be good and like that kind of thing it's not necessarily like a nostalgia thing it's just like like we're making this character look cool by referencing cool things that were happening in the past i don't know if it's necessarily like oh things were much better back in those days again it might be me misreading it but i don't think they had like a political message in this necessarily which i suppose is a message in itself but with two you kind of get the thing where it's oh it's jaws 12 and here's ronald reagan and here's michael jackson all that kind of stuff like that to me is more of a statement like that's kind of them saying okay look Here's the future. It's like the past, but everything's a bit shinier, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, as if Johnny agrees with that or not, I'm sure I've just talked shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's some truth to that. I think that to an extent, the depiction of the 50s is romantic. It is idyllic. It's sort of depicted as a, it has its problems, but it still seems to be a simpler time, a more innocent time. They throw a few bones to acknowledging problems, things like the you know, racism and things like that. Um, but I think overall it is somewhat romantic. And I think maybe that's a thing throughout the franchise. Like even the old West of the third film strikes me as very much a Hollywood old West. It's a nostalgic view of the old West. It's not Deadwood. It's not Deadwood, no. <laughs> um, it, and it does, coming back to, to it, it is interesting to look at this film now when there's so much nostalgia for the 80s and at the time of making Back to the Future, the very filmmakers who made it were nostalgic about the 50s, as you were saying, Daniel. Um, potentially our popular idea, especially our generation, because we didn't live through it, our popular idea of what the 50s is like is very much informed by these sorts of films. And it's important to remember that that wasn't everyone's experience of the 50s. Just like the people who are making films about and TV series about the 80s now, things like Stranger Things... That is very much a, a very narrow perspective on what the 80s was like. Yeah, because if you went back to Montgomery, Alabama, 1955, you know, that was 
1955 was the first year of the bus boycott, you know, of the civil rights movement. So that obviously would have been a completely different film had that been been involved. Yeah, it's the year that Emmett Till was lynched. Right, exactly. Yeah, it never, ever touches that. And you kind of don't expect it to. It's a blockbuster, but it's difficult to look at those kind of time periods and go, well, you know, is that right to gloss over this kind of stuff? What I would say is interesting, though, is actually in the musical, you have a song in the musical basically making fun of the 1950s as being a kind of patriarchal racist place and they're kind of all the different uh, citizens of hill valley are like talking up the the wonders of like chemicals and like smoking and um so it's it's a much more cynical take of the 50s whereas it seems to be a little bit more nostalgic for the 80s um, I mean, it makes a big deal at the start of the, the play that you're actually traveling back in time as if the theater's a, a time machine itself and you're traveling back in time to the 1980s. So it's interesting that that 1980s element has become part of uh, the nostalgia that's very clearly been used in making the musical. I mean, I think in the program, they talk a little bit about how there was a director they met who actually wanted to maybe do the musical as a contemporary project. And Bob Gale basically shot him down and said, no, why would we do that? Because the 1980s are such a part of the original film. Why would you, you know, why would you abandon that? I'd be kind of interested to see that, though. I don't know if the 1980s is necessarily essential for this. I think you could do something where you've got it set in the, you know, 2000s or 2010s. I think that's possible. Cause I mean, what we associate with Back to the Future now, you know, they go around playing electric guitars and skateboarding. Like there's no reason why that's essential to Back to the Future as it is. It's just about having a present, a past and a future. That's like the three main things that you have in Back to the Future. I mean, if you look at it, like they don't go back to the 1950s. They go to Greece, the musical, like. That's what they do. They don't go to a time <laughs> period. They they go to like a, a different soundstage, essentially, which is kind of the way I was thinking of it. It's not about the 50s at that point, even though it, it is, because this is the 50s. Like, that's not the way they use it in the script. They just use it as like, well, you know, here's an excuse to start talking about box socials and sock hops and milkshakes and all that kind of stuff rather than Pepsi Max and, and whatever. So... Do you guys, are you guys aware of the true musical heir to the Back to the Future franchise, 1999's S Club 7, Back to the 50s? <laughs> I want to know. I want to know more. I've never heard of this. Uh, this strikes me as the kind of thing that Daniel would have watched. Uh, I don't recognise the S Club 7. I only recognise Steps. <laughs> That's my only official statement on the matter. I was a big S Club 7 fan, I think, as a kid. Well, you should check it out. The whole thing is on YouTube. It's only an hour long. It's a one-off sitcom in which the all-time classic 90s British pop band S Club 7 travel back in time to the 1950s. And it's basically a parody of Back to the Future and Grease, but with S Club 7 songs. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So potentially that could be better than the musical, the Back to the Future official musical. I don't think it's potentially. I think it's just a fact. Oh, wow. Okay. Bold words, but I'm willing to find out. Is it as good as that um, TV show they did for CBBC? It's on par. Oh, good, good. I mean, is it as good as the quiz? That's the question. The real question. Frequent listeners, all one of you will know that before we crown our remake Rumble champion as a little palate cleanser, we have a quiz where I unleash on Daniel and David, a series of devilish trivia questions relevant to whatever we've been discussing <laughs> and the pair of them, the pair of them you could have. So I have been feverishly keeping track of scores, episode to episode, and as it stands, David is in the lead with three wins. 
And thank you very much. And Daniel lags behind with, oh, what's this? Zero wins? Yeah, sorry, oh, zero wins. Nada, Zippo. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I love it. Uh, do it you makes total just, sense, doesn't it? Just, just, just ask the questions. Okay. I'm sick of this already. So, <laughs> question one. Actually, David, uh, Daniel, you should know this because we already established in the last episode that you're an apologist for American imperialism. That's question right. one. That's right. Ronald Reagan reportedly loved Back to the Future. In his 1986 State of the Union address, Reagan quoted which line from the series? Was it A, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads? Is it B, who's vice president, Jerry Lewis? Is it C, nobody calls me chicken? Or D, I hate manure? Well, I don't know how he feels about roads. I don't know if he knows much about the Mediterranean, so I don't think it was that. <laughs> um, I think it's B, you know. Okay, you're going for B? Yeah, again, I've made the problem, which I've actually answered before David, which means I'm going to get it wrong. David, what are you going to go for? I know he, yeah, I know he was a big fan of that sequence. I, I think I've heard that, like, when he had it shown at the White House, he like asked the projectionist to repeat it because he found yeah. the who's the president, Ronald Reagan, the actor. You know, he found that funny. So maybe he did reference that. I, I you know what though? I, I, maybe he had some kind of road building project. <laughs> he could have actually, but to be fair, if he did, then he wouldn't need the roads, would he? So maybe. Road removal project. Do you remember the 1980s when Ronald Reagan destroyed every road? It was a famous moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I'm going for roads because I do remember. I mean, talk that about blunder, you know. The answer is, in fact, a roads. We're going. We don't yes. need roads. <laughs> uh-huh. ooh, ooh, ooh. Why did he say that? Uh, I hadn't the foggiest idea. Well, side note, by the way, on that, because I know some people have said, oh, Biff Tannen's just like Trump. Uh He's not like Trump. I just want to get that out of the way, because Biff Tannen has much more, like, skill and ability. (laughs) Trump is basically like a walk and talk in OK magazine. So I just want to establish that before we get any rude comments about our discussion of politics. Keep going. Question three. Christopher Lloyd has stated that he always wanted to do one more movie, in which Marty and Dot Brown time travel back to... When? Is it A, medieval Japan, B, ancient Rome, C, the Vietnam War, or D, 1990s Newcastle? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, before we answer this, did you say question three then? Are we on three? Oh, I'm so sorry. I skipped over a question. It's because I'm picking... uh... Oh, it's fine. Just give it to David anyway. Let's just cut the fat, (laughs) shall we? Uh... 1990s Newcastle, what would you be seeing at that point? It's it's basically a a Back to the Future Biker Grove crossover. Man! (laughs) Back to the Biker. Oh man, I I don't remember when um, Ant and Deck, aka PJ and Duncan, would have been around. I don't know if that was kind of their era. Um, Also, if you go to Sunday, you'd be able to see me potentially being born, which might be an exciting time. It's just like the Hitler Hitler paradox, would you travel back in time? (laughs) I'm just like Hitler, thanks for that, Johnny. I've I've never thought about it that way, but I am a lot like Hitler. Right, what we, what are we going for? I think they're going to go heavy on the Vietnam War because, I mean, Americans are obsessed with the Vietnam War and it's a, I mean, it's a fascinating period in history, but I don't think they're going to be bothered about medieval Japan. I, I just don't think it's up. I don't think it's up, I don't think it's up their street. I'm going to say Vietnam. It's a bit grim, though. I mean, even for them, like, it's difficult to make a nice, lighthearted family film out of, Well, you know, Agent Orange. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis did direct Forrest Gump. And there is Vietnam in there, so there's precedent. I'm going to go with Japan, just purely for the fun of it. I think it'd be an exciting time to see kind of like a Back to the Future anime experience. Well, possibly for the first time, you're both wrong. Um, the answer whoa, is B, whoa, Ancient whoa, Rome. What? Ancient Rome's the answer. Ancient Rome? Yeah. 
Hang on, do they mix up um, Martin and Doc with Asterix and Obelix? <laughs> okay, question three. Which actor was also considered for the role of Doc Brown? Was it A, Anthony Hopkins, B, Christopher Walken, C, Jeff Goldblum, or D, Jack Nicholson? I I um I think I have heard that it was Jeff Goldblum. Oh. So I think <sighs> maybe Jeff Goldblum. I, I think he would be an interesting dog. So yeah. Okay, Jeff Goldblum. It's gotta be Christopher Walken. It's too funny not to be true. Okay, you're going Christopher Please Walken. Please tell me Christopher Walken. Uh Is it? The answer is Jeff Goldblum. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I knew it. <sighs> I knew it. Okay. <sighs> Question four. Back to the future, the ride is a simulator ride based on and inspired by Back to the Future, and is a sequel to Back to the Future Part 3. The attraction opened in 1991 at Universal Studios Florida, 1993 at Universal Studios Hollywood, and 2001 at Universal Studios Japan. All rides have since been replaced. What ride replaced Back to the Future at Universal Studios Japan? Was it... I, hang on a sec. Are you, are you kidding? Are you kidding me with this question? <laughs> have, I, have I got... Do you know who you're talking to right now? <sighs> Let's... Well, to be fair, I don't if know. You, if you, get this, if you get this wrong, gosh, it's a lot of pressure now. All right, you ready? Is it A, Harry Potter and the Escape from Gringotts? Was it B, Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem? C, Woody Woodpecker's Nuthouse Coaster? Or D, Fast and Furious Supercharged? Oh no, I'm nervous now. Yeah, you better be. I've got too confident. <laughs> the hubris. Yeah, welcome to my world, where you don't know anything about anything. It's not fun, is it? <laughs> it's not fun at all. Oh, no. Well, you know what? I might I might have to bring in a ringer. I think I'm about to start levelling the playing field. Um, hang on, I'm just going to... Google it. I'm just going to try and... What is he activate. doing? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to Google it. I'm just going to make sure I activate this. Um, yeah, I'm just going to... Yeah, that's fine. I'm just gonna. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to Quizmaster. Oh, there's whatever there is. that. Have you activated the Quizmaster? I've activated the Quizmaster. Hang on, I'm just gonna see if I can. I'm just gonna type in the question. I'm just gonna see if I can do it. So what? The question was what ride replaced that? Okay, I'm just gonna type that in. Uh, just no said, cheating allowed. Oh, the Quizmaster said no cheating. <laughs> <laughs> what? what Good old Quizmaster. Why is he allowed a Quizmaster and I'm, I'm just, not allowed a Quizmaster? I'm just gonna. I'm gonna put the Quizmaster in sleep mode for now. I'm just gonna make sure that's fine. Um. It's probably... Man, I don't know. Well, I can confirm they are all genuine rides. I'm not sure if they're at Universal Studios Japan, but I have been on all those rides, I think at least, um, in either Hollywood or Orlando. I've I've been. I've been places. I've seen the world, my friends. (laughs) I've seen things. I've seen things. (laughs) I've seen Fast and Furious. It is about family. You know, you're you're right. It is. It is. Get this... Get this robot away! <laughs> Sorry, I thought it was in sleep mode. I thought it was in sleep mode. Oh my god. I'm going to say Harry Potter. Now, I, guys, we, we are in the middle of a quiz here, right? You know, <laughs> I, I do have other places I could be. No, you don't. That's <laughs> if. Um, I'm going to say Despicable Me. Okay. Uh, I, I hate that franchise. I don't ever want to say the words Despicable Me, but in this context, I may have to. So, Despicable Me, I think. Good, good news is incorrect. Tell him, Johnny. What have you gone for? What's your answer? I went for Harry Potter, I oh, told right. you. I wasn't listening, sorry. Uh, the correct answer is Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Russell Shite, what is the point of you? Right, Dan, you've got oh, one more yes. chance to get our question correct, okay? Here oh, we go. Fuck. You can't even get a question right with this robot. It's just <laughs> total nonsense. <laughs> I designed the robot myself as well. You put, you put your oh. heart and soul into Quizmaster 3000, it's didn't you? It's made of yogurt. 
yogurt lids and baked beans. <laughs> okay, question five. Dean Cundy was a cinematographer on all three Back to the Future films. He was also a cinematographer on which remake Rumble favourite? Was it A, The Thing, B, The Shining TV miniseries, C, The Lion King, or D, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? Go on, David, tell him. Tell him the wrong answer. The Shining miniseries, as I recall, I feel like I was watching it pretty low res. Uh, resolution but I don't recall that having particularly interesting cinematography and I feel like a Back to the Future graduate would surely surely have done something better than that so I feel like I would rule that one out. Maybe The Thing it's a similar kind of time period maybe hot off The Thing he jumped onto this maybe? I mean that that's that's wrong so uh, I'm going to say Attack of the Killer Tomatoes because at one point one of these stupid questions well one of the stupid answers is going to be right and I'm going to guess it's this one I'm okay. going to guess it's the tomatoes one. All right. The answer is obviously the thing. <laughs> we have a winner. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, just as Reagan once said, where we're going. What did he say? What was the quote? Something about roads? I hate manure, thing. Destroying I think he, roads? I think he said, I decree all quizzes shall be rigged. <laughs> Let the Gilmore bloodline die with its rotten filth. This is what you get for trying to bring robots into it. Robots coming over here taking whatever just get the robot out I love the robot and the robot loves me I never love you (laughs) never mind that's fine it's fine this comedy bit is is running out of steam quite quickly so let's move on but do we love the original film (laughs) and do we love the musical that's the question right Johnny okay time we went to the scorecards so David which did you prefer Back to the Future or Back to the Future the musical Oh, definitely Back to the Future, the the, uh, the original film. I mean, I, I don't have anything against the musical. In fact, I really enjoyed my time with it. In fact, I even own a shirt. I spent £25 on a Back to the Future, the musical shirt. So there you go. If that's not a seal of approval, I don't know what is. But I think it is, you know, for all Bob Gale talking about it being not wanting to be a slavish adaptation. I mean, it, you know, you can't deny it is just a pale imitation of the original film because that that's kind of what it is. That's what it's selling itself as. I think for what it is, it's good fun. I really wish it well. I really hope that once the world has emerged from this obviously awful situation that's currently in, that it will find success. I think it's meant to be going off to the West End, maybe Broadway, I don't know. And I think it deserves to do well. I hope more people get to see it because I think it's a really crowd-pleasing thing. But uh, it doesn't um, it doesn't hold a candle to the original film, I think. And Daniel, perhaps I can ask you which is your favourite Back to Future film? What would you do if I just turned around and said, oh, you know, I love the musical. It's my favourite thing for ages. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be one. Back to the Future 1 is just, it's it's a good fun time for all the family. Everyone has a good time. Get the popcorn, shove it in front of your kids and then just, you know, walk away and don't leave the stove on. They'll be fine. How about you, Johnny? What, what's your favourite? Well, I can say without a doubt that the film is better than the musical because musicals are an inherently degenerate medium. Um, it's true. But yeah, it's hard. Um, what? The... They are, they, are for, they are for perverts and deviants. I, I didn't want to mention that in the actual podcast, but I'm glad that Johnny did. <laughs> um, yeah, so the original... Rude, rude. <laughs> the original film, I think, is definitely the superior film by some margin. I think it's got a good script, fun characters, brilliant casting... We didn't really talk about this, but I think it's got a really tight structure, fantastic pacing where every scene has payoff. I do enjoy the sequels, particularly the third, but the first, the first film definitely wins for being the most original and tightest of all three. How exciting. I think we managed to accomplish a successful remake rumble again. It does seem that way. Well, 
On that note, thank you, gentlemen, for your timeless wisdom. And thank you for your attention, dear listeners. Remember to subscribe wherever you... I can hear Daniel typing. <laughs> Just ignore it. It's fine. Everything's fine. Keep going <clears throat> the outro. You can't acknowledge it. It's, don't pop the buttons. <laughs> and if you're feeling especially nice, why not leave us a review? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive the latest Remake Rumble rumours, slanders, and updates on Daniel's Doom quest to return to his original time. Now... <laughs> Make like a tree and get out of here. What's the what's the machine got to say about all this? Dan, I'm I'm curious. I will see you soon. <laughs> oh, he will. Oh, that's that's a, that's a very kind thing to say at the end of this podcast. I really hope we don't see him again, I'll be honest. <laughs> Why? Oh. Hugs and cuddles.